Good morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go give us a call? It's 499-9526. And you put a 225 in front of that number. We'll get you to us from anywhere inside the continental United States. That's right. You just go ahead and give us a call. If you call from out of state, we'll be sure you give the producer your address and whatever size preference you have. And we'll get an Agco t-shirt, USPS out there. Just a little special thank you for our out-of-state guests. There you go. We'll send that out first thing Monday morning. That's absolutely correct. And, of course, if you're in the Baton Rouge area, we always love to hear from you as well. That's our main listening body. There you go. And you give us a call. We'll try to help you out and point you in the right direction, maybe keep you from going astray. Yeah. Never make, know. Make it a, <laughs> could help you from making a big, expensive mistake. Well, and it's so, so, so easy to do that. Now, I was talking to a gentleman yesterday in the shop, and he was a, a typical guy, if I can use that phrase, baby boomer from my generation and most of us grew up around cars and kind of tinkering with our own cars and just out of necessity more than anything else could uh-huh. afford new cars so right but didn't really think a whole lot of putting a water pump on a car or maybe changing a thermostat or even putting a power steering pump on most of us are pretty handy right and cars were fairly simple back then and worst case scenario you really wasn't gonna mess up too too much right you had a pretty good quality of parts well, available that's then. Right. That's right. Because you know, in those days, most of the aftermarket parts were made domestically by people who made the parts for the OEM people. And in many cases, they were actually better than the original equipment parts. Right. Some cases, they were pretty Mediocre. good. Anyway, it went. The point is, you could fix your own car quite a bit. And that's what we were sort of talking about. And he had a later model car. I think it was a 2006 or so. And he was just remarking how there's just absolutely nothing he can really feel comfortable doing any longer. Right. Things have evolved in such a way that the guys that used to work on the cars don't understand how the cars are built today. Well, and I even look back at some of the guys I used to work with in the dealerships and stuff before I opened Agco. And of course, we're going way, way back, probably to the late 60s. And some of those guys I'm still friends with, and they'll call me occasionally. And, you know, they've moved on, done other things. And they're totally lost. Right. And these are line mechanics at one time. Well, and it's evolving so fast now that the technician that gets out of the market for two or three years. Oh, yeah. When he comes back, he's lost. He's so far behind. He just no way to really catch up. I know that just looking at, say, a 2000 model, and if you are totally trained to work on a 2000 model, if you see a 2008, you're going to be lost. Oh, yeah. In eight years, it's changed 180 degrees. It has. And from 2008 to 2012, it probably changed another 180 degrees. It's, it's, it's evolving just, just hand oh, over fist. Well, yeah. I mean, you take a 2008, it had probably central port injection. It had a crank sensor. It had these sort of things. And on your 2012, you got direct injection, no crank sensor, and not much of anything else. 70 computers talking on a multiplex network and class two serial data. It's just not a whole lot there. Even if you go in to try to do something as simple as maybe find out why your taillight's not working. Right. And you realize pretty quick, hey, that's not analog signal back there. <laughs> exactly. That, that's not two wires and one's hot, one's ground anymore. Right. And another car that came in earlier and guy was trying to trace down a solenoid issue. And of course, he had gone through quite a bit of stuff already. He said, well, I ohmed it out. I said, well, you can't test that by ohming it out. Uh-huh. But it, it measures out. And all well, it may but it's not an analog solenoid. It's a stepper motor, and it's working on a pulse width modulated signal. Right. What's that? <laughs> well, you don't need to be working on this. Because, right. But it's, it's not what you used to work on. It's not off and on. It's duty cycle. Correct. So what it's doing is sending out counts, and it's reading between 0 and 256 counts. 128 may be midway for the, the device, 
and it's always going to have a signal error. So if you're trying to measure with an ohmmeter, you're always going to have a signal. So right. not that that's necessarily wrong, but it just gives you not enough data or gives you incomplete data or wrong data. So there's no way to test that type of system with that. You have to have something like a digital lab scope that can actually measure the pulse width, look at the square wave, see the amplitude of the wave, the height of the wave, and so on and so forth, because that's how it's being controlled. It's not off-on. It's 256 degrees of off and on. Correct. And by not knowing or realizing or understanding that, he had gone completely wrong and was off on a tangent. And luckily, he did get it in before he spent too much money on it. He wasted a little bit of money, but not too, too much. Right. But I guess the point is just cars have changed so, so, so drastically that unless you really, really are willing to study and go back to school and learn, study electronics, study all these different things, get some more equipment, a whole lot of equipment, a whole lot of tooling, you're probably not going to be able to do a tremendous amount yourself. Now, there are certain things you certainly can do yourself, and I really invite people to do the things they can do. Sure. Number one, it's a good hobby, kind of entertaining. It teaches you a little bit about the car and that sort of thing. So that's sort of a good thing. But when you start getting off into electronic diagnosis, you're going to go so far wrong so fast that it's going to end up spending just a tremendous amount of money. And if you don't really understand, it's best to find someone who can kind of guide you. That's why I always welcome folks to go ahead and send me an email and let me know before you make a big decision, before you drop the hammer and start spending money or start taking something apart. You know, if you're looking at something, you say, well, I think I can do this. Well, that's great. Just fire off an email and say, hey, this is what I'm going to do, da-da-da-da-da. And I'll say, well, yeah, that, that, that'll work. Or I'll say, well, you, you better check such, such, such first. Uh-huh. So at least kind of give you some guidance. And I'm sure there are other people around who give you advice as well, but that's sort of a service we provide. Well, and, and good advice is hard to come by. Well, yeah. You un- can get advice anywhere. Well, that's fact. Unbiased advice is very, very difficult because a lot of folks, particularly folks who are willing to give you free advice, are giving this advice because it is going to benefit them in some way, shape, or form. Exactly. It's not an unbiased thing. It's sort of like we're listening before we came in. There's a show that precedes us on financial advice. That's one of the things he's talking about. You got to kind of watch who's giving you financial advice. Sure. Because if it's a broker who gets a big commission by you buying a certain thing, I'm not saying he's going to automatically recommend that when he shouldn't, but But you never know. Thomas is there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So you just got to be a little bit careful about where you get your advice. And and I would kind of say, hey, get advice from maybe a couple of different places. But if you're getting conflicting advice, look at who stands to gain from what. Exactly. And that will kind of tell you better who maybe I should listen to. A person who gives you advice just who is not going to stand to gain one way or the other is way more likely to give you advice that's unbiased. Correct. That's able to help you. Right. So just kind of a little tip. Talking about emails, I receive a pretty good bit of emails from folks all over the country. And got one here from a guy in, I think it's Yucaipa, California. Okay. And what he was saying, he's got a 99 Toyota Camry, and when he shuts the engine off, he says, as long as he's driving, it runs fine. Okay. It never overheats. It never gets hot. But after he shuts it off, it starts to boil over. Okay. And he was wondering what could possibly be causing that, and it'll actually leave a puddle of coolant on the ground. You start it up, it quits doing it, and then it dries fine and never overheats again, although he has to go back and add coolant to it. And I sent him an email. I said, well, what happens is that when you turn an engine off, it's at full temperature. It may be 212 to 220 degrees. Now, water boils at 212 degrees, and the reason it's not boiling in that radiator is because there's a pressure cap, which raises the pressure above atmospheric pressure. Right. It's just like a pressure cooker you use on a stove. Well, that's right. And what happens is that when you turn the car off, 
circulation stops. In other words, the water pump quits circulating the, right. the coolant. So it's no longer going to the radiator where it gives off the heat. So the temperature will actually rise even more. It may go up as high as 225 to 230. Now, if your pressure cap is just a bit weak, as the temperature rises, the pressure rises also. So let's say you've got a 16 PSI pressure cap, but it actually blows off at 10 PSI because the spring is weak. Right. Well, driving down the road, 10 PSI may be enough to contain it. But when you turn it off, circulation stops, the temperature rises, the pressure goes up, it may go to the max. Well, that's when the cap is going to blow off and try to relieve the pressure. And it's relieving at an artificially low level. So that's when it's blowing off and it's puking the coolant out. Of course, when you start the car, then the fans start to turn, the radiator's working again, the water circulates, temperature comes back down. So very, very likely that's going to be a radiator cap type problem. And certainly a radiator cap is inexpensive enough to where you could just go in, put a cap on it, see if that fixes it. And you're not out a whole lot of it, doesn't. You know, if it's the original cap, it probably needs changing anyway. Exactly. It don't last forever. Exactly. And, I mean, there are other things. You could have something like a head gasket or a crack in a cylinder head that after it turns off, the heat goes up, the crack opens up a little bit, it builds pressure. pressure. Builds. So there are other things, but those are For kind the, of more obscure. And right. you got a pretty simple fix here. I would certainly put a pressure cap on it and see what that well, does. You've got a cheap fix. Yeah. It's something the average person can do relatively easy, uh-huh. and it doesn't cost a whole lot to do it. And by buying a good cap, uh-huh. you have eliminated that part of the, the system as a problem. Well, that's right. And that's one of those things that's probably less expensive to change that cap than it would be to bring it somewhere and have it checked further. Uh-huh. With a very high likelihood of fixing the problem. Right. So, I mean, worst case scenario, you put the cap on, you cap on, it's still doing it. Well, you out 15 bucks and, and right now you got to do something else. But the odds of that are pretty low and the out-of-pocket expense is pretty low as well. So there are times when that is a viable approach. And sure. I thought that that would be a good approach on that one. Especially, say you got a vehicle, like when you work in a shop, you've got a vehicle you know has a pattern problem. That's right. We used to run into that with the ABS sensors on the back of the Ford pickup trucks. Yeah, that's right. They Ford, would go out and both had a real problem with ABS sensors a while and back. it was cheaper to go in there and put a sensor in it mm-hmm. than it was to try to diagnose the whole system. Well, yeah. Immediately, you would know within well, 10 minutes. Because you would a, know. a sensor at that time was, was less than $20. Right. And diagnostic time being $90 an hour, you're going to exceed $20 really, really fast. Really and quick. And you got I, about a 100% failure rate on these sensors. So even if it's not the sensor, you know it's fixing to go out. Exactly. So changing the sensor was a viable way to diagnose a problem, putting a known good sensor in, rather than spending 30 minutes verifying. And then, if you spend $45 to verify a $15 sensor. Right. makes absolutely no, no sense. sense at all. Yeah, just swap it out. Let's see if that does it. There are times when that is a viable approach. Now, where you can really go super wrong is if you get a not known good sensor. And certainly buying an OEM sensor, the odds are in your favor. It's going to be a good part you're putting back on. But what happens a lot of times, folks will try that approach. They'll go to a parts store, buy a part, and the new part is bad. Right. And then now a new part, it's assumed it's a good part. Assumed good when it is not known good. Exactly. And so they go off on a big old tirade of spending money on other stuff. Finally, end up bringing it to the shop. We say, "Well, the sensor's bad. No, our chain sensor. Well, the sensor's bad. Right? Why chain sensor? Well, the sensor's bad. <laughs> <laughs> We've you know, seen it happen. I put a land scope on, read the pattern, and I know that that is a bad part. So it, it's a known bad. We swap that out, it fixes a problem. But seeing people do that an awful lot, and it's just kind of a flaw in logic where you assume that new is good, whereas right. new is not, not known good. And if you ever read any 
factory diagnostic material, it will always say, install a known good part. <laughs> it never says put a new part. <laughs> right. A known good one. Yeah, it's kind of like, what do they know that we don't know here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Install a known good part. I'm always wondering, well, now, how do we uh, have a known good part? <laughs> hey, you got a whole parking lot full of other cars. Yeah, just I like guess it, so. Know? I guess so. But yeah, that's generally their Yeah, thing. I've, I've seen that in service data a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, install a known good PCM. Right. Whoa. Okay. Wait a minute. Yeah. 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 And now you can't even install a new PCM without owning it. Well, that's right. Because they're going to buy a computer. It's uh-huh. your computer. Right. And they're not going to take it back. And that's not an inexpensive part. And a lot of them, once you put them in the car, they're programmed to that vehicle. And if you take it out, it's not any good anymore. Well, that's right. And some of the newer cars, if you remove the computer and put another one in, the new one won't work. And when you put the old one back, it, it won't, won't work, either. work either. Right. So it sits there and it says, hey, we got a wrong IP address. So it locks the whole system out. And now you're into either a new computer or some heavy-duty reprogramming of some sort or another. Exactly. So, yeah, the days of swapping parts are used Just about, about over. <laughs> they are. Hey, we're going to take a quick little break. We'll be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. I get your kicks on Route 66. It winds from Chicago. Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a few things that chap my hide lately. $150 jeans, vanity licenses that are too complex to read, billboards that say drive carefully. Think about that one. Child beauty pageants. I mean, let's go ahead and set these kids up for failure before they get to kindergarten. And how about when you try to be nice and let someone out in traffic and they won't go because they're talking on the cell phone? Here's a message for you. Put the phone down! Another thing that chaps my hide is repair shops that use Swaptronics to fix your car. That's where they can't pinpoint the exact problem, so they just change parts, hoping to fix something, which means your repair bill could double. The experts at Agco determine the exact problem, then fix it right the first time at the price quoted, which does not chap my hide. Want more info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. Just join us the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, True Tools, try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go give us a call? It's 499-9526. Got every one of our lines wide open. Be glad to put you right up to the top of the list. That's right. Right now is the perfect time to call, too, That's because right. at the end of the show... We don't have a whole lot of time left to answer the questions. Well, I tell you, that's just the way radio works. It runs by the clock. That's and it. when 11 o'clock rolls around, it's time to go. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter who's holding. That's it. Just in case you don't get a chance to call in or something occurred to you during the week. That's right. You can always get your questions answered by sending Lewis an email. You can go to our website at agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. Easy way to remember that is take the acronym Altazan's Garage Company. That'll get you to our site. There is a contact bar on each and every page. You can send Lewis an email any time of the day or night. That's right. And you get an email to me, and I will generally get it back to you within 24 hours. I'll always get it back to you within 24 hours, and a lot of times much, much, much faster. If I happen to be sitting at the computer working, which I am a lot of times, when I see it come in, I'll generally go ahead and answer it right then and there, which may be... 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Right. Sometimes I'll go in if I haven't been on that particular facet of the computer and I'll check the email every so often, maybe every two or three hours. So normally you're going to get an answer back from me pretty darn quick. Now after about 8, 30, 9 o'clock. Then it'll be the next morning. It'll be 5 o'clock in the it'll morning. It'll be 5 the next morning when I get up because <laughs> uh, after 8, 30, I'm sleeping. That's so. it. <laughs> 
And of course, that is Central Daylight Time. There you so go. You have to be emailing from out in California or some other out place of, like out that. Out of the country, maybe? Out of the country or wherever. That's Across right. Across the world from somewhere? Well, you never know. That's it. <laughs> you just never, never know. know. We do get quite a bit, bit of international email as well. Put an article on the website this morning. That's a little bit different from some of the other stuff we've been doing lately. And this is on flat rate billing, which, in my opinion, is probably one of the biggest problems in the automotive business. And not everybody is aware of what flat rate billing is. And it's a kind of a something you need to read this article to understand. But that's where shops are going to bill you by the hour. In other words, they work on your car for three hours. You get charged for three hours. Everybody understands that. Uh-huh. But what a lot of folks don't understand is that the way a lot of shops work, an hour is not really an hour. Right. As we understand an hour, it's not 60 minutes of clock time. It's an hour expressed in a book called a flat rate guide. And let's say the book says it takes a half an hour to change an air filter. Okay. Well, it doesn't matter that it actually takes five minutes. They're still going to charge you for half an hour. And I think a lot of people have had that happen to them. Right. Maybe you go to a dealership, they change the air filter, and they charge you 45 bucks for something you know you could have done in 10 minutes. And really gripes people. So it tends to really irritate folks when they get charged for stuff that overcharged. Yeah, overcharged. And what I find is that a lot of unscrupulous operators will use this because they will charge the full rate when they know they can do it faster. Uh-huh. But if they know it takes longer than what it's given, they'll just charge that amount. They're going to charge the higher of the two. <laughs> right. They're going to come out on top. They're going to come out on top. Time. It's kind of like playing cards, you know, with a card shark. He's going to come out on top because he's dealing the cards. Right. And so I've always felt it was sort of an unfair system. I never liked it. And I also thought that it actually tends to hide the real problem. The real problem is that because a lot of shops are very inefficient in their operation. Either they have staff that's not really doing much of anything or it's just an inefficient layout or they're not properly trained or whatever. It takes them a lot of time to get stuff done. Now, that would be reflected in a much higher rate per hour if they were actually charging for the time they spent. In other words, if I can only charge it for one hour of time for one hour of work, I would have to charge a much higher rate per hour to cover that. Now, the rub is that people can easily compare rates per hour. Sure. You can ask how much you charge per hour. And if their rate per hour were higher, then it would run a lot of customers off. So what they do is give you an artificially low rate per hour, but just charge you a lot more hours. Mm-hmm. Because it's very hard to check the amount of hours they're charging the relative to the time they actually spent. Right. So that's at the heart of the whole issue. And I've just always thought it was kind of a really crummy system. But read that article. It gives you a lot of insight into that, how it works, some of the things you can maybe do to get around it and one thing or another, I think it's an article that uh, the average person who gets automotive service might want to know about. So it's www.agcoauto.com. I think you'll really like it. And we're going to our phone lines with Pete. Good morning, Pete. Hey, so how you doing this morning? Doing great. Good morning. Right. I have a 97 Chevy. Okay. A 5.7 engine. Okay. And in the morning time, it'll crank right up, no problem. Uh-huh. After I drive it and shut it down, and it'll spin over a few times for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's a up. Chevy pickup, Pete. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, the most common reason for that, Pete, is going to be the fuel pressure regulator is leaking into the intake manifold. And what happens is that when the fuel pressure regulator leaks, it's going to more or less flood the engine. In other words, you've got fuel pressure on the fuel rail all the time. So when you turn the car off, it maintains pressure. Well, if it's sitting there dripping into the intake manifold, it's going to flood a hot engine. Now, when the engine cools off, a lot of the fuel evaporates out, plus it just takes a lot more fuel to start a coal engine so it can start fine. 
But okay. that's almost always going to be the problem with that is a fuel pressure regulator. Now, on a 97, that's probably going to be under the intake manifold. will be part of what they call a central port injection setup. So okay. it's one of those things you've got to have a little bit of tooling or a lot of experience to be able to find. If you put a fuel pressure gauge on the vehicle and turn the key off, the fuel pressure should maintain for a period of time. If it kind of slowly drops to zero pretty quickly, then it's leaking somewhere, and that's the most likely cause. The way we actually find that is to run a camera down the throttle body where you can look in there and see it, and you, you'll be able to see where it's leaking. If you don't have equipment like that, you'd have to take the intake manifold off to check that particular one. Some of them, the regulators on the outside, but on that one, it's underneath the intake manifold. It's actually behind the throttle body. When you look at the top of the engine where the air horn is, there's a big connector behind that electrical connector and the regulator is actually behind that mm -hmm. but like lewis said you can take a camera and run down the air horn and you can look toward the back of the engine and you what you'll be able to see is when the fuel comes in and it's doing its job it leaves a residue on that intake well the fuel that's not being burned just sits there and it burns it it takes that residue off and it's real clean it'll make a nice clean spot so where that fuel is running actually it actually you can actually see it running off into the ports and that's, that's a big indicator right there. Yeah. You're getting fresh fuel in there that's not being used. On that thing, Pete, if you're going to go to all the expense of pulling the intake manifold off and replacing the regulator, what most people do, GM had a lot of trouble with that system. It just wasn't a, a real good system from the get-go. Later on, they dropped it. They went to port injection. Now, they do sell a retrofit kit where you can convert that to port injection little bit pricey, but probably not a whole lot more than buying all the parts to fix the one you got. And it's a much better setup than what you got now. Far, far better. The truck is going to idle better. It's going to run better and get better fuel mods than it ever did before. But it is a kind of a big deal. I know the, the injector thing is probably close to about $500 for the part. And it's probably okay. two and a half, three hours to pull it all apart and put it in there, plus your gaskets and stuff. So a little pricey, but it'll fix the problem. And it'll also get you better gas mileage, make it idle a lot better. And it'll keep Eventually, you can have engine problems if it keeps going because that excess gas is running down in to start washing the rings out. Eventually, it'll take the catalytic converter out. Okay, then. All right. Fuel pressure regulator. Uh, most likely, yes, sir. And, of course, it's pretty easy to test. Have it tested first, but that's most likely what you're going to find. Thank you, sir. All right, Pete. Thanks, man. All right. We're going to take another quick little break. Hey, Ron, hold on through the break, and you'll be right up at the top. Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a few things I'm tired of. I'm tired of reality TV. There's nothing real about it. I'm tired of all those housewives, the Kardashians, the brides, the bachelors, celebrities in rehab. Here's an idea. Let's ship all the Flavor Flav, Snookies, and Honey Boo Boos off to a deserted island and watch America's average IQ jump up a few points. I'm also really tired of automotive repair shops that promote an $89.95 brake job and then hit the folks for $500 and give them a lousy job. Listen to me. Take your vehicle to Agco, where you get quality work performed right the first time for a reasonable price. And that, my friends, is the reality. Want more info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. Please join us. The Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, give us a call. We'll be glad to hear from you. 499-9526. We certainly love to hear you. And we've got Ron from Racine, Wisconsin. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Lewis. 
morning, Lewis. How are you doing? Doing great, sir. Morning. I have a 2000 Plymouth Voyager SE minivan. All right, sir. And check engine light came on a couple weeks ago. Uh huh. We checked it out and cold P704, I believe it is, and a P0707. Okay. I'm going to do something to do with the torque converter, the clutch and the torque converter. Yes, sir. Ron, those are. Basically, what they're saying is that the torque converter input and output speeds do not match. And what computers going to assume is that the torque converter is slipping. But that's not always the case. It is possible that that's the case. But more times than not, there's an input sensor and an output sensor, sometimes called a turbine sensor. If one of those sensors gets a bad input or output, it's going to set the same code. So... The way we go about diagnosing that is first hook a Chrysler scan tool to it, go drive the car, and you can read what the sensors are seeing. Now, clearly, if I'm driving 30 miles an hour, engine RPM is 1,500 RPM, and the input sensor set is 700 RPM, I know that's wrong. So I know I've got a bad sensor, so it's pretty easy. Or if the input sensor is set at 1,500, the output sitting at 700, then I know I've got a bad output sensor. Now, if there is actually a difference in the two sensors. They're reading correctly, but there is a difference in speed. The next thing you would need to do is do a pressure test on the transmission to see if the solenoid is commanding the proper pressure. Because if you don't get enough pressure to the torque converter clutch, it'll slip and that will set the same code. So this is kind of sort of the way you got to go about doing it. First, you drive it with a scan tool, see what the sensors are reading. If the sensors are reading correctly, next, an external pressure test to the transmission. If a pressure test shows that they're getting full pressure and command, then you're into the transmission, which it could be something like torque converter itself. But I got to say that is less likely the case than one of the other things. More likely we find electrical problems or something like that. The thing you don't want to do is take it to a transmission shop. The torque converter's bad. Yeah. Or yeah. They're going to sell you a torque converter. Yeah, anybody that says, well, we're going to have to take it out and see what's wrong. Oh, you're in the wrong yeah. place. Because right. all diagnosis ends. As soon as the pan comes off, all diagnosis is over. So wow. you want someone who is going to be able to say, hey, we're going to run this test. We're going to run this test. This is what we're going after. We charge this much per hour. It should cost about about this many hours. And, you know, both of those tests combined should be somewhere around an hour to an hour and a half at most. So let's say their flat rate is $90 an hour. You should expect to spend around $90 to $100 to have both of those tests run. And at that point, they should know exactly what they're going after. Okay. Now, also, I believe it's transmission fluid. We get a couple of drops of transmission fluid here and there. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Okay. That's pretty common on that unit to have leaks. Most of the time, Ron, what I find, the solenoid body, which is outside of the transmission, will leak on those. Generally, that'll start at around 70,000 miles. Between 70 and 120, you can almost guarantee it's going to be leaking. That can be repaired without taking transmission out or taking it apart. You can replace solenoid body from the outside. So it's, it's actually on the front of the unit closer to the radiator. Mm-hmm. on that unit. And you want to make sure, Ron, that it is full of fluid because if it's a little bit low, like if it's got a leak, and let's say it's a quarter too low, it can set those P700 codes. Yeah, it's full. Go to my site and just type in automatic transmission fluid. And there's a real nice article that tells you how to check the transmission fluid. And check it the way that article says. It's a little bit tricky, but check it exactly like the way the article says. And if it's okay. low, go ahead and add some. It's going to take ATF plus four. And that's a fluid you buy from a Chrysler dealer. And you might even just add a couple of quarts to it if it's low and then see if that code doesn't go away. It, it may actually clear it up because the low fluid can also set those codes. Okay. All righty. Okay, thanks, Lewis. Hey, Ron, thanks, thanks for calling, man. Thank you. Yes, sir. We'll get a T-shirt out to you. Okay, thank you. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. 
All right, 499-9526 number. If you want to be part of the automotive hour, we'd love to have you. And we've got Mark on line. Good morning, Mark. Hey, Lewis. How you doing, man? Doing great. Good morning. Hey, well, what's your sidekick's name, Brian? Brian, uh-huh. yes, sir. Yes, sir. Ha- happy Saturday, guys. <laughs> All Thank right, you. man. Hey, listen, I got two old trucks that a friend of mine's fixing up right now. Uh-huh. And I tell you what, man, one of them's a 93 Chevy. Uh-huh. Club cab, you know, just with a basic six right there, you know? Yes, sir. And... Man, the thing must have been built during the middle of the week because he has no problems with it, okay? Yeah, it was a good truck. And it's low mileage. And I had a truck similar to it that I switched over and burned raw purple in it. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering what your guys' feeling is about synthetic oil like raw purple in an older vehicle. It's fine, Mark. I mean, if the vehicle has been running fossil oil for a long period of time, it may or may not be worth it to you to do it because you're probably not going to gain a whole, whole bunch. Some people who need synthetic oil, or some people yeah. who don't. And I've got an article on the website. Do I need synthetic well, what about oil? Down here with our heat, Lewis. Well, heat is really not an issue because when you're talking about 100 degree ambient heat, you got to remember that engine is running 200 degrees on the coldest day of the year. Yeah. And the oil temperature is probably close to 275 degrees. So 100 degree ambient temperature is nothing. I mean, okay. our heat, the difference in 50 degrees and 100 degrees external is absolutely nothing to all. Because this run is so much hotter than that. I got one other question mm-hmm. I want to ask you. I've had the worst luck on used trucks. I've sold them, bought them, and everything. Uh-huh. But is, is there something about Chevy, say like in the uh, late uh, 1997, up in there, 96, about their cooling system? Uh, I mean, I've had one hell of a time with one truck. I, I finally gave it to a guy as is almost. Is there something about their... No, really not any any big problem. I mean, obviously, they have trouble like everybody else does. Most of the problems come from people not changing the coolant enough, and it starts to corrode the system, and then you'll start having one problem after another. But most cooling system problems either come from a lack of service or improper service. But no, properly serviced, they don't have any more trouble than anything else does. We still work on a lot of them and really don't see any... I'm not going to say I don't see you know, the water pumps going bad or see a thermostat sticking like everything else, but we don't see any more trouble with them than anything else. They're really pretty robust little truck. About the only real complaint I ever saw on that truck, people said the brake pedal was never real high and hard like it is on some vehicles. It stopped good, but they always had a little bit of a mushy pedal. It's just the way it was designed. But overall, pretty darn good truck. Really not too many problems with it to speak Man, of. Man, I want to tell you something. Next, uh, Counting Cars is my favorite show. All right. Well, I appreciate <laughs> it, man. Thank you, man. All right, Mark. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. All right, 499-9526 is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive hour, we'd love to have you. And we've got Richard online. Good morning, Richard. Hey, how you guys doing? Doing great, sir. Good morning. Yeah, I'm in the process of trying to do a resto mod on an 89 Mustang Okay, yes, sir. And I was just wondering, does your shop do frame and body work also or just mechanical? No, we don't do any body work. We do do frame and suspension, Richard. And some people say, well, why do you do one without the other? We were originally a suspension shop, suspension specialist, and that involves a lot of framework. We generally go in on cars that have either been wrecked and improperly repaired. We can correct them. Sometimes we do get cars that people don't like. Body shops will send them to us to do the framework for them if it's heavier than they want to fool with. But yeah, we can do any kind of frame repair on it for you, particularly if you have like those that had a bad problem with the rear control arm mounts cracking up and stuff. We can go in and re-weld all that, rebuild it for you, rebuild the rails. We don't do the body work itself, like the painting and the sanding and the dents and all that. That would have to go to a body shop. Yeah, well, that's fine because, I mean, mainly I was wondering more like, the, like you said, the frame and suspension because 
Very oh. good idea, James. If it's a car you're fixing to put some money in, which you probably are if you're trying to restore it, to bring it in, have us just measure the entire frame and tell you what's wrong before you get real deep in it. Reason being, there's a lot of things that I can fix, but they're much harder to fix after you've done all the body work and painted the car. Right. See, I wasn't going to do any of that until I made sure to frame That's right. Well, it's kind of like restoring a house and going and putting new sheetrock and new wallpaper and painting everything real nice, putting new floors down, and then go jack the foundation up. <laughs> you know? It starts <laughs> yeah. cracking things up. So you want to do that first. Those cars, Brian... Tell me if I'm wrong, but isn't that the one that the rear control arm mounts oh, used yeah. to crack up real bad on? Yeah, it's got a four-link with uh, coil sitting on it, and the upper control arms take a lot of the torque when, mm-hmm. you, when you're really hard on them. It's just welded into the sheet metal of, of the unibody in the back, and you'll rip the mounts away from the sheet metal. They actually have a kit you can go in and reinforce. You take the back seats out and reinforce that area if you're going to drive it real hard. Yeah. Because uh, people usually drive them cars well, yeah, pretty you know, darn hard. No, you're having a Mustang, you ain't going to run a snot out of it. That's it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. All right. Oh, well, thank you very much. All right, Richard. All right, thank sir. you, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, 499 number. If you want to be part of the automotive, we'd love to have you. Uh, let's see. We can go back to the line. We've got Thomas on the line. Good morning, Thomas. Morning, Lewis. How you guys doing? Doing today? great, doing sir. Great. Got what I think is a fairly simple question. You okay. named the, there's a name of a company that mm-hmm. you put on the air one day, and I cannot remember it, and it's the folks that you buy, like, your rubber bushings and that type of stuff for, for front ends, like... Suspension you know, parts? Uh-huh. Yeah, suspension yeah, we use parts. Moog. It's M-O-O-G, Moog. And M-O-O-G? Yes. Uh-huh. Can I get them online? I'm sure, yeah. You can buy them locally. There's several places that handle Moog products. It's, it's probably the number one producer of front-end suspension parts. Now, you got to watch, Thomas, because Moog produces their premium line, but they also produce a second line. So, if it says store name and don't mention any names on the air but store name by moog that's not the same part that is a part okay. that moog makes for them just like michelin makes tires for some of the discount stores and all but it's not a michelin tire it's a tire made by michelin for them right so you got to be a little bit careful with that you want the real moog part you don't want a knockoff type part and i think moog has been bought and sold it's not the original folks who started the company still running it Okay. So you got to be a little bit, little bit careful that you're getting the, the true show enough move part. Okay. Well, I, I, this is on a, this is on a little Nissan. I mean, would I be better with OEM parts or would I be better with the move parts? The Nissan OEM part is a real respectable part, Thomas, and it's not going to be any less expensive than the move part would be. I would probably just go with the Nissan part on that. When I'm dealing with domestic cars, where some of the parts, like particularly Ford products, the the OEM part is really bad then I'll go to the move because it's a better part. But Nissan okay. makes a pretty respectable part, and they are very reasonable in their suspension parts. Kind of high on, on electrical stuff, but they're pretty reasonable on suspension stuff. Okay, well, I may just go back to the OEM. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. You well, you, you know for it. sure you're getting the right part. And... Okay, well, cool. Look, I appreciate your help. Bud. All right, Thomas, thanks, man. Thank you, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, 499-9526, number if you want to be part of the automotive hour. And we've got Bruce on the line. Good morning, Bruce. Hey, how you doing? Doing great, Good sir. Good morning. Hey, I was asking about a PCM, changing out a PCM. I heard y'all talking about it earlier today mm-hmm. that sometimes it won't go so easy. Uh, my question was, right now, my I got a Dodge 03 quad cab, 1500, yes, and every 10 seconds, the dash dials all go to zero. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then come back up. Yeah, that's probably not going to be the PCM on that one, Bruce, because the uh, PCM does not operate the dash on that vehicle. That's run through the BCM and the instrument panel cluster, which are two oh. computers in and of themselves. All right. 
more likely you're going to have a bad connection inside your dash. One of the solder joints is bad, but it could also be the body control module. But you got to be very, very careful when you try to tackle that kind of stuff yourself, Bruce, because you're probably going to diagnose it wrong. You're probably going to spend a whole lot of money, and you're probably going to make the problem a whole lot worse. You, you're way, right. way better off to face my nose what they're doing to go ahead and check that and tell you exactly what it is. Okay, because I know when they, they hook up the OBD2 mm-hmm. connection, it mm-hmm. doesn't talk to it. Well, that's going to be a separate issue, too. That's more likely right. something like a blown fuse and cigarette lighter circuit because if the PCM were shut down and wouldn't communicate, the truck wouldn't be running. Okay. So, see, the OBD2 connector takes its power from the cigarette lighter fuse, and if you go to the state, they're going to plug into that little connector, and if it doesn't communicate, that's far as they're going. They're not going to try to diagnose problem. It's going to tell you fail. But right. most time, folks tend to plug things into those, you know, they plug in cell phone charges and everything else, and they blow that fuse. So most likely that's going to be the case there. But your problem with your dash is not going to be the PCM. It's going to be most likely in the instrument cluster, but possibly in the BCM or the wires in between. So I would probably pay somebody to diagnose that properly. I wouldn't go start throwing parts at it because, number one, that computer's probably about 600 bucks or better. It has to be programmed to the truck, and it's just not going to fix that problem. Right. You don't think it's an ignition switch something? there too possibly mm, it's possible does anything else go out or just the dash drops out the wipers aren't working and the radio at the same time um, it, it all occurs at one time right yeah yeah it could be it's something like ignition feed yes sir absolutely ignition feed or even one of the feeds from the power center under the hood i mean there's tons of things it can be but the point is unless you've got some way and a lot of knowledge of how it all works you're gonna spend right. a whole bunch of money and not get anywhere very far I mean, a good shop could probably diagnose that in an hour, maybe an hour and a half, two hours at most, and that's way cheaper than any money you're going to spend trying to find it. I have seen a bad power wire coming in from under the hood to the back of the fuse box burn out, mm-hmm. and it'll make intermittent connections sometime and cause that same problem. Yeah, it might touch at times and not at right. other times. And I mean, so many possible things, anything that drops the power out or, of course, the computer itself, even a sensor that's going to ground, you know, something it's freaking the computer that you, yeah, out. you don't even think of could cause that kind of thing. Yeah, I always seem to have electrical problems. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I understand. All right, All right man. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank All you. Right. Bye-bye. All right, one last little break, and we'll be right back with more of the Automotive Hour. Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a little advice for those who overshare on Facebook. I know I friended you, but please, I don't need to know what you had for breakfast or where you just scratched. I don't need to know your Uncle Dominic's political beliefs or that your mom painted her kitchen the color called Frosted Fern. And for the last time, we don't care that your cat, Doogie Meowser, really looks like Neil Patrick Harris. Some more advice? In this tight economy, why waste money on a new vehicle? Stick with your older model and take good care of it to make sure it lasts. Come to Agco for quality maintenance and repair, and we'll save you from throwing money away on a big note so you can pay other bills or save for something else. In Facebook terms, that's something you'll definitely like. One more info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. 
back. Just join us for the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis Aldazan, president of Agco Automotive. We've got our lead tech, Mr. Brian Terry, right here in the co-pilot seat. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Still got a few minutes. Go ahead and give us a call, 499-9526. Of course, if you're out of state, listening to us on iHeart or any of those fine type feeds. And you'd like to call in and get on the radio live, you can put a 225 in front of that number, and that will get you straight to us. From anywhere in the United States. That's <laughs> right. And if you're outside the country and you want to call us, we welcome you as well, but you have to figure it out yourself because I don't know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as much as I have traveled outside the country, you would think, huh? you think I know how to make a phone call back, but I just never. Yeah, usually by the time you get out there, you don't want to call back. Well, that's right. That's right. You know, back way, way back, of course, I was out for a whole year and, and I didn't have the wherewithal to call back at that time. But yep. uh, later on, when I have gone, I did make a phone call back from France one time. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Dad and I went over there and I uh, ended up calling back and about 15 operators and I, this was way back when and i had to call the post office i think and then they called me back when the call was complete and yeah i don't remember it was it was a <laughs> big big old deal i'm sure it's much much easier now so let's go back to the phone lines of jim good morning jim hey i have a ford f-150 All right, six cylinder mm-hmm. and i've got a bad miss between the 50 and 60 miles an hour uh, good emerge on the interstate it, I mean, it just has a, I don't know if it's a lockup converter or the engine. I don't know. Ain't tell. Yeah, well, you can isolate the lockup converter pretty simply. Jim, next time you're doing it, keep your foot exactly in the same spot on the gas pedal and just reach over with the other foot and just touch the brake pedal. And if it quits immediately, then you're talking about a lockup converter problem. Now, I can't, uh, ex- I can't accelerate through it if I accelerate hard. Yeah, yeah, it will. But like I said, right. you, when you touch the brake pedal, it's going to come out of lockup. So if it immediately stops when you touch the brake pedal, then you get into like a torque converter shutter. And that'll be almost like running over a cattle garden road, just a kind of briefly. More likely, it's going to be an engine running problem. And at that speed, one of the most common things would be like ignition coil or something or bad plug wire going out because those will tend to miss under load like that. Other things, there's many, many things that can make a car miss, but most of the time they're not going to be up at that high of a speed or under load. I would probably check. Are you getting a check engine light? It's never come out. Okay, it may or may not. See, Ford's got a kind of a screwy misfire counter. If you had a Ford IDS scan tool, which is a Ford factory tool, you can actually drive it with the tool in there, and you can go to what they call mode six, and it'll show you the misfires. So you can tell which cylinder's misfiring, and once you know which cylinder's misfiring, it's fairly easy to isolate why it's misfiring. You can swap the plugs and see if, it's, if the misfire moves. You swap the wire, see if the misfire moves. Swap the injector, see if the misfire moves. So it's fairly straightforward once you identify the cylinder that is missing. But you, you, you say you, do it under load, but it doesn't, it's an easy acceleration like an interstate. Yeah, that's considered load. Right. You see, if you right. tromp down on it, it's going to kick down to a lower gear and the load's going to go down. The heaviest load is when you're lightly accelerating at a higher speed because you're putting the maximum load and the transmission is not kicking back down to a lower gear to compensate for it. Exactly when it does. Yeah, that's going to be when it's under maximum load. So, I mean, if you just want to do something yourself and you're pretty handy and the spark plugs and all need changing anyway, you could try changing the plugs and wires. About a 50% chance that's going to fix it. And if it needs doing anyway, if not, bring it in. I mean, I can drive it, hook the Ford IDS to it. I can tell exactly what someone's missing and we can isolate that in less than an hour. I don't want to work on it. (laughs) I hear you. (laughs) I understand. I was hoping I was beyond that point. Yep, I understand. Okay, so I can tap the brake, and that'll help you. Yeah, if you touch the brake and it quits doing it, then you're into a torque converter shutter. And in most time, what I would do is go in and service the transmission properly. You know, don't get a flush, but a proper transmission service, and that takes that out a lot of time. So pretty easy. Almost any professional can drive it and just about tell you which it is. You know, I, so I've got enough experience brake. where I can drive it and see. If I touch the brake and it stops, 
Then you end up talking about a problem. Then it is to talk about it. Yes, sir. If you keep your foot on the gas where it's making the miss, just lightly touch the brake pedal with the other foot, and if it immediately stops, then most likely you end up talking about a problem. Now, that's something you don't want to let run off if that's what it is, because yeah. if you let it go, it will eventually take the converter down. And you'll never be able to get it out. Well, you have to right change now, Right now, you're probably in just a transmission service. Right now, a service may get it out for you. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. All righty. All right. Okay, Jim, thanks, man. Thank Bye-bye. And that misfire under load is one of those things that is kind of difficult for the average do-it-yourselfer to isolate himself. Uh-huh. And Ford's misfire counter is a little bit screwy because the way that it works, it has to see a misfire on at least two consecutive drive cycles at the same RPM right? before it's going to set a code and actually turn the light on. Now, it may set a pending code, but it's not going to set a hard code that you're going to be able to see. And let's say you're driving along at 1,500 RPM and you accelerate into it and it starts to miss, and then it sets a pending code. You turn it off. Next time you drive it, you don't go to the circumstances. Well, on this drive cycle, it didn't occur when I clears it. Next drive cycle, you drive at 1,500 RPM. It does it again. Again, no light. Next drive cycle, you're going a little bit faster, and it occurs at 1,800 RPM. Well, it's not going to set a code because of a different RPM range. Mm-hmm. So you may have to drive this thing several times to actually get two consecutive drive cycles where the miss occurred at the same speed before it's going to actually set a code, to which is going to turn a light on, which is going to end up something you can diagnose easier. I know GM and Chrysler and Toyota and those guys are a little bit simpler on their setup. Generally, if a GM starts missing, it's going to throw a light and lights going to start flashing at you. Same thing with Toyota. Yeah, you get a bad call or something on a Toyota, it's going to start flashing that light at you real quick. Hey, we got a misfire here. But Ford's a little bit more difficult. Now, I got to say, too, I guess in all fairness, the Ford IDS, which is their latest and greatest scan tool, it's a laptop-based scan tool, it has an excellent Mode 6 And what Mode 6 is, is a feature that mechanics can get to that allows you to watch each cylinder individually. It even puts a little graph up there. You can watch the cylinders firing. It graphs it out for you, almost like a graphing lab scope. And you can see and count the number of misfires per cylinder way, way before it ever says check engine light. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a neat tool. It really is. They did their homework on it. Yeah, it, it's real good for you know for doing that. About four thousand bucks for the tool and yeah. uh, fifteen hundred bucks a year to renew it. But <laughs> not to mention the learning yeah. curve. Yeah, but I, I'm, not, I'm not bitter about that. But you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Huh? Yeah, if you got that type of equipment and the wherewithal to use it, the training and all that, right. then it becomes a lot easier for you. You can go in and, like I said, you can see which cylinder's missing, and you can a lot of times pick up on correlation errors. Or is this cylinder misses when the fuel trim goes negative? So. Exactly. Exactly. Makes it a whole, whole lot easier for you. Hey, I want to tell everybody how much I appreciate them listening this morning and every Saturday morning on Automotive Hour. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week. Go tell your friends and go to iTunes and give us a written rating. Yeah, we really appreciate written ratings. It moves us up in ratings. More people can hear us. Hey, preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend.